Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our fields. We're all involved in something, and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. It's August 16th, and we are sitting down with Matt Luckett. Dr. Matt Luckett started teaching American and world history part-time at Sierra College in 2018. Originally from the Midwest, Dr. Luckett received his BA in history from Southeast Missouri State University in 2003, and an MA in history from Marquette University in 2005. After taking a few years off, he relocated to California, where he completed his PhD in American history at UCLA in 2014. His first book, Never Caught Twice, Horse Stealing and Culture in Western Nebraska, 1850-1890, will be released by the University of Nebraska Press in fall 2020. Congratulations! He is also working on a documentary about earthquake prediction scares in the Mississippi Valley and a book about his grandfather's experience during World War II. In his spare time, Dr. Luckett enjoys woodworking, traveling, and spending time with his family. Wow, you got a lot on your plate. Uh, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really do enjoy talking to people from all different fields. So I think this is going to be a fun one. But I do have one question that we start out our podcast with every week. And that's, Matt, how do you drink your coffee? Iced with a little bit of half and half. Yummy. How did you get involved in both your, your research on on horse stealing and then your your other projects? How did you get involved in the work that you're doing now? Well, with respect to the horse stealing, I was originally really interested in vigilante violence. And and I'm going to sound like a real jerk, uh, but I, I kept thinking, well, why would people want to, you know, be violent and protect their, their home? And, and I, I kept going down this, this road of, like, I don't want to say vigilante apologetics, but I was really trying to get in the head of, of people, like, not, and not in the South, but like the upper Midwest, you know, horse uh, stealing victims and people like that. And I was talking to my advisor about this. He's like, you know, what's your, it really seems like you're interested in this horse stealing. And I thought, I think you're right. That's a good idea. Uh, and, and so I just sort of turned on a dime and, uh, and I started working on that. And the more I started working on that, the, uh, very quickly realized that no one has really approached it as a intercultural phenomenon. So I wasn't just looking at, you know, bad guys stealing horses. I was looking at Plains Indians. I was looking at uh, the army stealing horses from Plains Indians. I was looking at ranchers uh, swindling horses from the army and from Plains Indians. And it's just this this big cycle and culture of theft in Nebraska. And, and just the, the more I, I dived into it, uh, the more stuff I found. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad I had that, that intervention. Uh, my advisor's part. As, as for the earthquake thing, I grew up in Missouri, and when I was nine years old, a uh, climatologist named Ivan Browning predicted that there was a 50-50 shot of a major earthquake hitting Missouri on December 3rd and 4th, uh, which seems oddly, strangely specific, and, and it kind of is. And people took it very, very seriously. And so I'm nine years old, and I'm, I'm just kind of watching everyone freak out a little bit about it. And, and my parents were pretty, like, they, they, this is just hysteria. It's going to, you know, blow over. But I remember going to school that day, and, like, only half my friends went to school. 
because people were genuinely afraid of it. And uh, I, I think that's when I, I started becoming interested in uh, hysteria, you know, the, hyster- the role that hysteria plays in our lives. And in a lot of ways, that kind of feeds into my horse stealing research, too. So I, I'm fascinated by people freaking out. So uh, uh, I guess 2020 is a good year for me to be alive, really. But um, yeah. <laughs> is it, though? <laughs> That's a really fascinating topic, though. And I think that's a really interesting angle to come at it from because, I mean, people in the past had emotions just like we do now, and they may be reacting to different situations than we face today, but those emotions are the same. Oh, absolutely. Um, The thing about horse stealing that that really got me towards the end was just how trumped up it was. Um, I think horse stealing actually declined during the 1880s. Uh, Fewer people were stealing horses by 1890. And after 1893, statistically, it became a lot less of an issue than, say, like burglary, because people were buying smaller things and nicer things. And it just became easier to steal, like, the small, nice thing than the big, clumsy thing that will, you know, really get you in trouble. Uh, But in spite of that, people continue to freak out about horses and their horses being stolen. And one of the reasons why I think that is is because uh, horses were so important in so many different ways. They were pets, they were uh, investments, they were tools of production. And horses were also very susceptible to a lot of different ailments, you know, disease, snake bites, trains, lightning strikes. I mean, and, and they're uninsurable because of trains and lightning strikes and snake bites and things like that. And so I think people really focused on horse thieves as something that they can control uh, even though horse stealing was going down, I think people really seized on horse thieves as being this entity that they can at least, you know, have some measure of control against when there is just this whole universe of things that are sort of conspiring every day to take away their horses. Do you see parallels between the, um, I, I, I don't want to call it mass hysteria because because horses were so important, but do you like the the mass I'll use your word like the mass freak out and the, the the panic about horse thieves and someone coming in who you don't know and taking this thing that's very valuable to you do you see any parallel between that and this culture of of fear-mongering I'll say or surrounding common sense gun laws someone's going to come and take your gun from you or do you not see that at all and I'm just look I'm just reading something into it that's not there no, no. I, in fact, I talk about that uh, towards the end of the book. Um, I, I think there's a lot of mutual unintelligibility with some of these things. You know, I think having grown up in parts of the Midwest where you're a lot closer to a, you know, to somebody with like a drug house in their backyard than to a police station. You know, I, I understand the fear that you know, one might have of, of the police not making it in time. But on the other hand, you know, there's this castle doctrine belief that really extends to private property. And I think horses, you know, they're not fully responsible for that, but I think they uh, really help create this mentality among a lot of people that horses are worth protecting with deadly violence. You know, that didn't always happen in the late 19th century uh, and early 20th century. I think we still sort of attached to horses, this idea that we need to protect them with, with some sort of lethality. 
And I think that extends to today. I think we still seem to use that same kind of rhetoric of protective violence. And we see that with, with vigilant, with vigilantes, with superhero movies. You know, like when you watch uh, the 1989 Batman, the best Batman, by the way. Um, and, you know, Batman's running around saving people from having their stuff stolen. I mean, it, it, that mentality has lingered. And if, if anything is stronger today, I think, uh, the, the idea that we need to protect our stuff uh, with violence which is a very different thing from protecting our, ourselves in the event that someone attacks us. But. I see this this thing that, that I don't know if you address it in your book because, you know, I haven't read it. Um, but I'm seeing this this kind of relationship in, you know, like broadly speaking, United States history between um, the protection of of property, and I use that to include horses and then also things like, you know, shiny things that are easy to, to take. You don't have to feed them. You don't have to water them. You don't have to vet them. Um, so if anyone is thinking about theft, um, go for the diamonds, not the horses. But the horse might get you somewhere. Who knows? Um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um, but anyway, but I'm seeing this, this bent to it that is very deeply rooted in this... Um, this white supremacist settler culture. Do you address that in your work? Yeah, I do. So one of the things that I really have to, to sort of get around, uh, you know, in my work is that that notion of settler colonialism. And and so one of the things that I, I really try to address is private property uh, and the relationship between private property and this new culture that really starts to, to ingrain itself in the, in the high plains, you know, by the late 1870s and late 1880s. And this is mostly small private property owners, homesteaders, you know, the, the Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, white guys in wagons, and, you know, they go and they boldly blaze this new trail into the West, and then they start these homesteads and things like that. So, yeah, I talk a little bit about white supremacist culture. One of the things that really distinguishes this new culture on the plains from some of the cultures that preceded it was small herd ownership and only having two or three horses. I, now that was by necessity because most of these homesteaders could really only afford two or three horses, but that was definitely a contrast to both ranchers that had more collective forms of herd management. They had larger herds, managed their herds uh, in a much larger uh, scale, you know, than smaller herds, uh, but also American Indians and Plains Indians who had individual horses and had individual private property uh, within their horse herds, but who also viewed their horse herds in a more uh, collective capacity. So they protected them together, chased horse thieves together, punished them together. Whereas for the the white settlers who come in, it's every man for himself. And one of the things they figure out in time is that they really can't protect their two or three horses from these outside influences by themselves. But instead of forming a more collective basis for protecting them, they sort of double down and they say, okay, well, if you take my horse, then we're going to kill you. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's one of the things that really starts to drive this vigilante impulse in the plains, uh, especially towards the 1880s and the 1890s. 
So um, I was actually going to have a Paw Patrol example in there and, and, and talk about that. That's that's kind of where my head's been lately. So, <laughs> well, I mean, like Paw Patrol is. I did not realize how big Paw Patrol was until I worked with someone who has like a three year old in her life for Halloween. Like this this little girl came in with the Paw Patrol Halloween outfit and a Paw Patrol thing, like a like a Paw Patrol candy bucket, which was like news to me because i had a pumpkin until i was old enough and like badass enough to get a cauldron Um. it's funny because when i would be doing museum education and working with the little ones i wouldn't like code switch until much later in the day and i'd realize i was showing up at like dinner with my friends fresh off an outreach and i'd be like hello my friends how are you and they'd look at me like (laughs) erin What are you doing? (laughs) But you know what I realized was a really dated reference a few days ago? The Magic School Bus. Carlos! That's back, actually. I know, and I made a comment to someone that if we were going to run a storytime Halloween program, I would dress up as Miss Frizzle, and they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. Oh, wow. She's a professor now, incidentally. Oh, cool. Oh, good for her. She got one of the jobs. So I, I know way too much about this. Uh, yeah, in reboot Magic School Bus Land, uh, Miss Frizzle goes on, she gets her PhD, unbeknownst to everybody. And then one day, I think it's the first day of school, she shows up and she says, okay, uh, here's my little sister who is now going to be your teacher. And I'm a big time professor and I have a million dollar grant and I'm going to be doing this from now on. As I, well, I, well, there's a lot of issues with that, but you know, I, I guess good for her. <laughs> there, yeah. How do wow. I get that I, job? I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what your journey was to that, but tell us how, how did you do that? So I'd, I'd like to be a fully funded Miss Frizzle for Halloween, please. <laughs> Perfect. So, well, like my daughter's gonna grow up watching this, and she's gonna ask me, "So why don't you go to, you know, Istanbul and get this?" Like, honey, it, it doesn't work like that. But you know. <laughs> So Matt, what kind of challenges have you faced to get to this point in your career? I know some people have talked about field experience. We've had a few that have discussed being a first generation scholar. Uh, We had another one that talked about, you know, just the difficulty financially of getting to archives. So as you look at your journey um, as a scholar or even just a person, um, what do you think is really the fundamental challenges that you've been dealing with to get to where you are now? I, I guess a lot of the things that, that you mentioned, uh, I'm a first-generation scholar, uh, first-generation college grad. Uh, actually, my, my father was a uh, uh, HVAC technician, and uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was, I guess, a, 11 or 12 or something like that. Uh, not, no, young, I, was, I, was, I think I was 10. And then she got a job working in a bookstore, and she, she's been able to work in the book industry ever since then. But... You know, growing up, um, college wasn't a sure thing for me because neither of my parents, you know, have a four-year degree. And I was, I grew up in a very working class uh, neighborhood in St. Louis. And I was a C student, so it actually wasn't looking very good for me uh, for a long time. Until I got to my senior year and I realized, well, I have asthma, so I'm probably not going to get into the military. So I should probably go to college, I guess. Maybe I'll do that. Uh, and so I go to college, I, I go to Southeast Missouri State because I, I wanted something 
a little smaller than uh, Mizzou, which is like 50,000 people, and it just looked really huge and intimidating to me. And so I went to Southeast Missouri State and had a wonderful experience. I, I knew all my professors, the uh, faculty to student ratio, it was like one to 25. Uh, I, so I knew all my professors and my first year, I, I did a uh, like a first generation student, sort of like, you know, new student orientation kind of thing where my first semester, we all took the same classes together and I forgot what the program was called, but it's like a first step kind of program. And one of my history professors in that program said, you know, you seem to really like history. And my plan at the time was to go and be history teacher because I thought, well, that's something I can do. And, you know, I've always loved history and I've always been fascinated by it. And he said, well, why don't you, you know, get a history degree and actually be a historian? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, well, if you get your PhD, you can become a college professor. And I thought, well, it's where, you, where do I find out? I want to do that. That sounds fantastic. And at that point, I, I knew what I wanted to do. And so I, I go on, I do that, and eventually go on, I get, I get my master's at Marquette. And, you know, I took a little time and, and I moved to Boston and just spent a few years going to Irish pubs. And <laughs> As one does. Yeah, right. Like, do I really want to do this? And, and then eventually I, I got really lucky and, uh, and got into UCLA, even though I didn't get in with, with any funding initially. So I had to really, um, you know, scrape the, the barrel for fellowship opportunities and things like that for uh, out-of-state tuition and, and still ended up taking some debt. But uh, it was one of those situations where I, I would never recommend somebody going into a PhD to you know, take debt for that. But I also knew that I would have regretted not doing that because that was by far the, the best program that I, I got into. And, and I, I would have always you know, question myself if I hadn't done that. So I, I did it and, and it all worked out uh, pretty well. But, you know, lining up money year after year uh, was always a challenge. And it was always sort of a question, you know, by March, like, well, how am I going to be eating in, in, in August? You know, like, uh, what's that situation going to be? So uh, I, I did pretty well uh, in, in that sense. But you know, when you're an unfunded student, you're always thinking on the side about, well, where's my next fellowship money going to come from? Where's my next TA ship going to come from? And, and that, you know, preoccupies you probably more than it should because you should be, you know, reading books and you should be really investing yourself in your field. And instead, you're, you're just trying to think about what happens next. In fairness, UCLA since then has, has gone to full funding, but uh, I was one of the, the, the last people to get in uh, and be told, well, good luck. <laughs> I'm ABD at Stony Brook, which is, you know, a, pub a lovely public um, education. And I, I really do love that most of my education, with the exception of, um, you know, like preschool, was all public, was all in New York State. But I have to say that the funding structure leaves a lot to be desired. It is not a good way to make sure that people finish their degrees um, in any sort of time frame. I, I don't want to, you know, come back years later and say, well, they really messed me up. And because uh, I, I, I met my wife there, uh, my kid wouldn't be alive if I didn't go to UCLA, right? So I had a great time there, had a great experience. But 
uh, yeah, it, it definitely made things tougher. And, you know, and, and you just, you find ways to, to be resourceful. You get a job or, you know, in my case, uh, I wrote a dissertation about Nebraska, which is a very cheap research state. Uh, <laughs> I was able to, sub, I was able to sublet an apartment, uh, actually a room uh, in a house with some very crazy people uh, for $350 a month. And, you know, it was a lot cheaper than one of my friends who's in Paris for a year, you know, doing research. I'm like, well, yeah, she's in Paris doing research, but here I am in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a cheap date, but it, it worked out pretty well. And um, that, that my D.C. research, not so much a cheap date, but, you know, that was, that was still a lot of fun, though. But Yeah, that, that D.C. research is never cheap. And even I have no. family in in, like, Silver Spring. I would go and I would stay in the basement of his fraternity house. And I kid wow. you not, my husband would drive me to DC because he wanted to see his brother. And I would stay in the basement of the fraternity house, um, which was lovely. It was set up like a little Airbnb. It was, you know, he did a really good job making me feel welcome in that house. And then I would go to the Library of Congress. But it was a, it was a whole whole project management thing that nobody really at least informed me about when I was applying, but moving, yeah. moving right along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you're working on this, this project about, um, about your grandfather's experiences in world war two. Can you tell us about that? Right. So my grandfather was, uh, a Pearl Harbor survivor. He was a Naval reservist and he went off to Hawaii and I, January, uh, 19, 1941. And so he, the, and he was there for Pearl Harbor, obviously, and then for the, the duration of the war. And twice a week, he'd write his parents a letter, and usually a very long letter. Uh, my great grandmother was apparently very high strung, and so she needed like details. And so he would write these very long, involved letters about life on the ship and everything like that. And so my great grandparents saved all the letters that he wrote. And so I, like over the years, I, I interviewed my grandpa once about Pearl Harbor and we had like a three hour oral interview. He tells, it's one of the reasons why I'm a historian today is because my grandpa would tell me all these stories about Pearl Harbor and, you know, life during World War II and things like that. And he told me a couple of times, like, well, eventually you'll get all these letters. And then a few years ago, he passed away and he was, you know, 97, lived a really long, great life. And then after he passed away, I inherited just this like suitcase full of letters, seven or eight hundred of them. Uh, and that includes about a hundred letters that he wrote to his you know, future wife, my grandmother, Rose, and also several dozen letters that she wrote. And so my initially I thought like, well, I want to digitize these or just I want to do something with them, mm -hmm. you know, and. I started reading them and just the more I thought about it, the more I got sucked into the story. Uh, and I started writing about them. I, I started a blog and I started blogging about them. And then as I start putting this story together, this narrative of my grandpa's, you know, World War II experience and, and this is experience is a little underrepresented, right? He wasn't like on a D-Day beaches or anything. He wasn't like an English pilot. So like he was on a destroyer and an oiler. And so those are stories that we typically don't don't hear a whole lot about. I thought, you know, I, I, this should be a book, I think. And so I've been blogging about it. Uh, if anybody's interested, it's 
if you go to luckythistory.com, uh, you'll see my grandpa's letters blog. And so every month I, you know, blog about that month's letters. And so I'm up to, this is, we're taking this in mid-August. So uh, I'm tomorrow, my November 1944 post is going to drop. And then by the end of the year, I'll be done uh, with October 1945. And we'll get to his being um, mustered out of the service. It's, it's been a fun project because I've learned so much about not just my grandpa, but uh, also my grandmother, who I never met, because uh, she passed away a couple years before I was born. And so I'm getting to know my grandmother through these letters, these love letters that she wrote to my grandpa, which is a little weird. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I'm not going to lie. It's a, it's a strange way to get to know your grandmother, but I never really heard stories about her growing up, and no one really told me anything about her growing up. And so for the first time, I feel like I'm getting to know my grandma, if that makes any sense. And so it's been a lot of fun. I think that is the coolest thing. And to be able to learn about both of your grandparents in that way and to really hear about their experience in a way that I don't think grandchildren always get the chance to, that is so meaningful. That That's really, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, and, and I also felt like, well, this is such a gift. I mean, like if, if I was just a, if I wasn't related to these people, you know, this, I think this collection would be a gift right? Uh, as far as there's so much, so many things I can do with it. So the fact that I'm related to them, you know, it, it just makes me want to do something uh, really cool with, with, uh, with the letters and with all the other stuff I'm finding. And uh, so it's, it's just been a, a lot of fun so far. And I think that one of the things that, that I find when, you know, when I teach either undergraduates or high school students is that well another reference that has kind of like gone by the wayside is that um people no longer say that their grandmother was a riveter because the people whose grandmothers were riveters are now the people in the front of the class teaching the class yeah um so when i talk to you know my students and i say you know my grandmother was a riveter she built um she actually built airplanes in tarrytown new york and my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps, um, and he didn't do anything um, that we would, you know, that we would like represent in film or, or we would, uh, you know, like memorialize in some sort of World War II nostalgia. Like he ran a kitchen and played baseball. Yeah. Um, and the stories that he would tell would be mostly about um, playing baseball in Japan, and that's what he would say that he did and he made and he had friends that he wrote to for most of his life after he died we found out that he was corresponding with people um that he met in the service wow and that was a story that we didn't know until after after he had died but for my grandmother like one of the things that she was the most proud of of her her work as a riveter was that she built um one of the planes that George Bush Sr. flew. Oh, wow. And she saw a photo of it in the paper, and I guess it, like she had remembered the number um, that, she had, that someone had painted onto the plane, so she wrote him a letter. And she said, you know, like, dear Mr. President, um, I was one of the women who built the plane that you flew. And he wrote back. Oh, my goodness. Wow. 
Cool. So, so like he actually wrote back to her and, wow. and included a photo and everything. So when I talk about the world war two to my students and I talk about, you know, like the differences between, you know, like going to war and then staying home to make sure that, you know, that that war could happen. I like, I would talk about that and I would talk about, well, you know, this wasn't like, like the riveters didn't disappear. They just, they were pushed out of the workforce. Some of them were pushed out of the workforce, um, but they still remembered being riveters. And some of them, you know, raised your parents or raised your, you know, like raised your aunts and uncles. And they were like, oh, this is still relevant to my life. So like moving World War II away from like the historical memory of, of, you know, like teenagers or people in their early twenties and really saying like, this was something my grandmother did and I'm not that much older than you. I know Caroline and I have spoken about this, but I have recently been doing a lot of family history research and I found out that my great grandmother was one of the radium dial painters in New York city. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's really a fascinating story. She's someone that I never got the chance to meet, but she worked on the plane dials. So the the dials that would glow in the dark on aircraft and the GI buttons and like her children would tell you these stories about how any of the reject uh, materials they'd painted, she got to take them home and the kids would play with them. Um, which of course was incredibly harmful health-wise, but they didn't know it at the time. But yeah, it's it's interesting moving that World War memory away from the war itself and to the lived experience at home. You're absolutely right. Or yeah, you know, or just what? in general, like these stories that that aren't on film. Like none of our grandparents. I'm gonna speak. You know, like a, I'm gonna make a very big generalization, but I don't think any of our grandparents or my husband's grandparents had. Um, these saving private Ryan world war two experiences, right? Like it was like, that is so right. Yeah. I, that's one of the things I'm really hoping to do with, with this project uh, because neither my grandmother nor my grandfather, the labor that they did during the war fits within that common notion of what people did during the war. Right. Uh, my grandpa was a steam engineer. And so, you know, he was a steam engineer, first on a destroyer, and then an oiler. And one of the interesting stories that I found was uh, when he was transferred to his oiler, uh, a lot of the officers that were also assigned to that oiler were very upset with being attached to an oiler. And some even refused to go to the commissioning ceremony. So, because they thought that this was like an affront to their masculinity, right? Like, well, why would you put me on an oiler? You know, like I'm supposed to be out there, you know, killing people and I'm supposed to be, you know, on the battleship, I'm supposed to be in the carrier or whatever. Um, but two interesting things about that, right? Like number one, uh, if we didn't have Oilers, we wouldn't have won the war, right? It's that simple. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to uh, liberate the Philippines. We wouldn't have been able to liberate New Guinea. We just, we wouldn't have been able to do it without uh, Oilers, without tankers. Uh, but the second thing too, though, is my grandfather's first ship, the Chu had one battle star throughout the entire war, and that was from Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, the Mink, my grandpa's second ship, hit the tanker, the oiler, had three. Because Japanese bombers uh, a couple times tried to bomb it. Uh, a couple kamikazes actually uh, tried to attack it. And so it actually shot down a couple planes uh, during the liberation of the Philippines. 
And so, you know, they're really, uh, they're big targets, right? Both figuratively and literally because they're huge ships. Uh, so that's work and that's valuable work and that's essential work. And my grandmother too, uh, she wasn't a riveter, uh, but she worked in the Naval Department. And I'm trying to find out more about what she did because it was kind of hush-hush. And so once the National Archives opens back up, now that I have a better sense of where she was, I can get her information. But, you know, she was very proud of her work. And she actually moved to Washington, D.C. She got it. She was in St. Louis where she met my grandfather and got a job in D.C. So she had her own big, great World War II adventure. She moved there with her best friend. And, you know, at a time when, you know, women aren't supposed to be leaving home. You know, they're not supposed to be going off on their adventures, moving to different cities, doing things like that. And she goes and she does this and has a great job and, you know, contributes in, in this way. In this. And by the way, when she was there, she made a lot of friends with waves, you know, who were uh, women who were actually enlisted in the, uh, in the Navy. Uh, she worked with them a lot. So those are the stories that I want to tell in this book, too. And I really want to privilege some of that not always privileged World War II labor, because we so often forget about those stories, especially when you know, we watch like the Pacific or uh, Band of Brothers or, or something like that or see a Rosie the Riveter picture. You know, we forget that there are just so many, I, so many millions of people did so many things during that war. Uh, and we need to do, a, a, I think, a fuller job of really portraying that. I agree, especially, um, you know, I think family history is a really, like, rich way to start looking at that. For one, you know, um, we know their names and we know how their names have changed or been changed um, over the years. And, you know, I, I encourage anyone listening to if your family um, has, has you you know, any sort of service record, look for it. And you don't, you don't have to have a subscription to a genealogical service. You don't have to have a subscription to anything other than your local library. Um, they can help. They are lovely people. This is a massive plug for local libraries. Um, and no, I'm not sponsored by a local library or a local librarian. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you're listening to this, you can do this too. And so many people in the last year, I'd tell them about this project and they'd say, oh, well, my grandfather or my grandmother did this in the war, did that in the war, or had this experience. Um, I taught a class uh, last semester when everything kind of went to hell with COVID. Um, and it was a, like, how to do history class. And I based it around family history. And one of my students did his project on his grandfather, who was a prisoner of war in the Philippines. And he was sent to Russia during the war. And it was just a fascinating story. And he has all this material on it. Like, you need to write this down and preserve it. And there's just, oh, these stories are just going to disappear over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, as these people pass out of our living memory. And, you know, we need to do everything that we can to, to preserve that. So, that is absolutely within everyone's power to, to do it. And, uh, you know, go on Facebook, rent some web space, and just put that story out there. Find a way to get it out there. 
So speaking of, you know, projects that, that, you know, we can all take on, if you had like unlimited funding and time and resources and institutional support um, or any other sort of supports, what would you want to do with that? What's your like ideal project? I, I guess there's two answers for this, right? Like there, I had this idea for a documentary where I go to the only antipode, uh, the, the reverse uh, polarity on the globe, right? And so the only land intersection for the United States is this little island in the South Indian Ocean. So that's the only non-oceanic antipode on American soil. And then go there and then do like a big documentary. But it required a $30,000 uh, ticket on a research vessel to get out there. And that just seems really self-serving. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just, that was, but I think what I'd really do with that is I would go to different courthouses throughout Nebraska and the High Plains and then sort of expand out from there and digitize the holdings in these rural courthouses. Because one of the big things that I did for my book on horse stealing was I went to several different uh, counties in western Nebraska and I actually went into the courthouses themselves where these, they still have these old court ledgers and these old judicial court documents and things like that. And they're just sitting there, and no one uses them. No one does anything with them. Uh, the county, the counties themselves don't have the resources to digitize them. The state hardly has the resources to digitize them. So I would do it. These are lovely places. I had such a great time going to North Platte, Hyannis, Sydney, Nebraska, places like that. And these are just such beautiful places uh, on the map that no one ever visits. And I would just, I would go one after another after another and just find out what they have and just digitize them and make them freely available to anybody who wants them. And there's so much history in these courthouses and they're just collecting dust. I mean, that's a really worthwhile project. I think there's a lot of archival sources in places that we don't always expect to find them. And even if we do to expect to find them, they can get really hard to get to, especially if they're not digitized. Right. It kind of affects what stories we're able to tell. You know, if there's someone across the country who would be interested in working on a topic, but they don't have the funding to get there. Exactly. So Matt, so this is something Caroline and I have spoken about with each other. And it seems to us that a lot of the times there can be this pressure to produce or pressure to be productive at all times. And I know that coronavirus and the shutdowns and this very bizarre situation we're living in right now can either amplify that for some people or it can lessen it. I'm not one of the people that feel like they're under less pressure right now. But my question to you is, do you feel this pressure to produce or be productive at all times? And if so, how do you deal with this? I or, absolutely or asking for a friend that's us. <laughs> <laughs> so as, asking for a friend that's both of us, how do you deal with this pressure if you feel it? I feel it and when I figure it out, I will let you know. Um, <laughs> Good answer. I, I I'm running constantly away from from the shadow that is chasing me of, of unproductivity and things they should have done. And every time I seem to turn a corner, it's like uh, you know, when you're watching like a, a montage chase sequence or something like in a cartoon and then you think the coast is clear and then like out, 
you know, from a corner snake sight, the thing that's chasing you and then you run off again. I, I kind of feel like that's my life. Um, yeah, right. It's like yeah. out of, or you feel like, okay, well, what if I just like run through this tunnel and it's, and it's like a tunnel that the Wiley Coyote painted. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, my, oh, this wasn't a tunnel. This was a brick wall. Cool. I, I just finished uh, a book. I'm halfway through my second book and part of me is like, hey, I should be happy with this. This is great. But I just don't feel that, right? I, I feel like, well, I should do more and well, I should have this, I should and do that. And, and, and I think part of it, and I've tried so hard to work past it, but the whole tenure track versus not tenure track uh, dichotomy, I think it, it psychologically sort of weighs on me more than it does like in, in any other way, if that makes any sense, right? It's, it's like, I'm happy with where I am. I'm okay where I am. I, you know, live in a, in a nice town, a nice house, a great family, and da, da 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 But there's just that little thing screaming in my ear. It's like, well, you know, you're, you set out to do this other thing and get a tenure track job. And, you know, getting past that, it's, it's really, I feel like I'm lying on a couch somewhere. Uh, it's, We've been told this ends up, uh, being like a like a very introspective examination of our motivations getting into that tenure track job such a rarefied thing that then we need to use so many other words to describe how we are positioned or have maneuvered um, ourselves like with respect to this tenure track job and I feel like um, it's it's just a lot of work and a lot of words to make ourselves legible yeah, I, I think the irony is that I would never be able to do this uh, grandpa's letters project if I was going for tenure someplace. I just, I don't think it, I'd be able to make that happen. Um, I was talking to my advisor at the Western History Association, uh, I think actually last year, and he's like, well, don't tell people about this book I, that you're writing now. Like, well, why? I mean, this is what I want to do, you know? I don't want to. And and when I think about it like that, it, it makes sense that I'm kind of veering off in a non-academic track, right? I want to write for a more uh, public audience. I, I try to write my book in such a way that, you know, the general public can read it, that it would have hopefully a little bit of a wider readership while yet not uh, dumbing down any of the research or, you know, dispensing with uh, any of the things that I learned or any of the sources or make, making it less. Yeah, I just, I try to frame it and write it and package it in a way that I think more people would be interested in if I had just written it like as an arcane uh, piece. But as I go in that direction, I'm, I'm happy that I'm going in that direction and I'm motivated and I'm happy about it. But, you know, it's just that chip on your shoulder that, well, you know, why aren't you doing this? And I, I don't know, it, it, it'll take time, I guess, to sort of get to the point where I just don't care anymore. You know, I'm, I'm slowly, I guess, getting to the point where I don't care anymore, but it, it's just going to take a while, I think. So I think the saving grace, though, is those of us who get PhDs or go even part of the way um, and then go off and do other things, you know, we're we're on the wild now, right? And I think before when you go, you get a PhD, then magically you have a job because your advisor calls somebody. You know, now that those days are over, uh, I, I think 
downstream, there's going to be a lot of really good things that happen because of all these brilliantly educated people who are now doing all sorts of different things out in the world. And yeah, I, I think that's an eminently good thing. And I'm happy and proud that I'm hopefully maybe my own small way, you know, going to be part of that. Uh, but, you know, it is born of, of trouble and uh, tumult and uncertainty, you know, and it's... I, I can say this. I'm glad that I found an exit an exit route that I liked and that I, I want to stay in before COVID happened. That's fantastic. I really feel for people in their first year or who just like finished their first year of a PhD because I would be freaking the hell out right now. I would be like, I don't even know. I don't even know. But if you could change um, anything about, you know, like the field of, of history or the field of documentary making, documentary filmmaking, what would you change? That's that's a really tough question to answer and not something I really gave a lot of thought to because for I think like a lot of people I felt like I'm just trying to tread water in this, you know, in this in this discipline in this uh, industry and not think of myself as being in this position to like really affect change in it. But one thing I would say, and this is, maybe it's a trope at this point to say it, but I wish there was more integration between what the history that academics write and the history that non-academics consume. You see this everywhere. You know, uh, historians, they go, they write these wonderful, brilliant books. And, you know, what do people read? They read David McCullough's The Pioneers, which is terrible, just awful. The bibliography doesn't have anything written within the last 50 years. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, how is this written? How is this a book? But that's what people read, and they read it, and they go to Barnes & Noble, and they think, oh, this is brilliant. I love this. You know, and they sit in their armchair at home. You know, there needs to be more of an effort to bridge that divide. Um. Because ultimately, you know, we we need one another to survive, right? Uh, our history isn't going to survive if it's written by people like Dinesh D'Souza. But on the other hand, you know, history as an academic discipline itself isn't going to survive if at least some part of it doesn't capture the public's imagination. And we see this today with debates over the efficacy of a college education and these are supercharged now because of COVID. Like, what's the value of, of a college education? And, you know, I just think back to one of the first questions you asked me, you know, like as a first-generation college student. So when I went to college, I thought about it not just in terms of, well, what kind of job am I going to get out of this? Like, it wasn't just a transactional thing. I thought, how is this going to make me a new person? And I embraced that, that aspect of, of college. This is going to make me a new person, and this is going to help me evolve into the person that that I want to become and and it really did I mean I, I changed dramatically uh in in college um in, in in a lot of I think really positive ways and history and and the humanities in general should, should be like that one of the other things that I that I do in my laundry list of jobs is uh, I run a humanities master's program it's history philosophy literature art history uh and music 
And so one of the things that we try to do with, with this program uh, that is really, it, it's not just like the humanities as far as like, you know, old Greek philosophers and, and things like that, but what do the humanities, what place should they have today in our lives? And they should be formative and they should help us bridge our experiential gaps and find out new things about ourselves. And they should capture our imagination. And um, I was fortunate enough to go to a college and have professors that did that for me. And so I just, I wish we spent more time thinking about that. And, and that's not to say that people don't, because they, they do. I'm not trying to throw everybody under the bus here, but you know, there, there needs to be, I think, a closer relationship than there is. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that, that we miss a lot as, you know, sometimes as, as scholars and then also as, you know, members of the public, because we are both, you know, I don't live in like a hermetically sealed academic bubble and then I switch to my her hermetically sealed member of the public bubble. I am both. Um, is that a lot of the work that we do as scholars is publicly funded. And what I mean by publicly funded is, I mean, um, some of my archives are in the New York Public Library, right? Like that is public. Um, that is as public as public gets, or their court records, or the fellowship that digitized something was an NEH fellowship, or or the thing that I'm studying was um, part of a public grant. So this this stuff that that we're studying, or these places that we're visiting to look at materials and learn from them, um, and sometimes even our educations, like I went to state schools, um, are publicly funded and for the public good, so the public should have access to them. And I do not, and I cannot defend um, a sort of like elitist siloing of academic work, because if you're, um, you know, like if, if your best friends, like sisters, cousins, dog walker can't understand it, then then you're then you are not putting in the effort to make your work understood. Absolutely. So I, I feel very, very strongly about clear writing and and not not getting trapped or not wanting to be hidden behind some sort of impenetrable wall of of theory or big words that no one can really pronounce or, um, or just status because, you know, in the end you can't take it with you. And this is supposed to be for the public. It's, it's, we paid for it as taxpayers. We should be able to use it. And I hate that I fell into the taxpayer trope. <laughs> it's, it's important though. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and, and there should be some return on invest. I, now I'm really going to sound like a jerk, right? Uh, to return on investment with that, and in the sense that it increases public engagement and education. Um, one thing I guess I could say really quickly, um, like my uh, my mother's family is from Alabama, and a lot of people in my family believe a lot of the things that, like, like for instance, that you know slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War. They defend the Confederate monuments and things like that, and uh, I scream and, and just, you know, I, I lose my mind on social media over these things, right? Because they're, they're just, they're insane. And it's this false apparatus of, of history that's being created and constructed before our very eyes. And it's, it's a terrible thing. Like, I can't lay 
fix this right on the shoulders of, of the historical discipline because there's just so many things that really feed into that sort of whitewashing of history and the the creation of just this huge racist confederate uh, apologetics you know that really uh, dominates i think what a lot of people still imagine to be their history but you know on the same token we need to, to find ways to break that down um and and i i say this not as in like i have the ideas for this right like i i don't have a hillbilly you know elegy kind of take on this right like here's how we fix it right i, I it scares me and it concerns me that my cousins and my some people in my family just so thoroughly misunderstand what i do that they think that i just sit in a room and make up history and i wish i knew what we can do to fix that but i want that to be a conversation right like what can we do to, to fix this right like um yes i'm going to keep on shame i'm going to teach my classes in such a way that you know breaks down these myths um i'm going to push myself in that direction in terms of breaking down the myths that i hold you know um and and trying to make my own historical thinking anti-racist but you know part of that also has to be how do we bridge this further right because we're already uh in this category i think of people who are listening to this and and thinking in those ways but how do we reach those people who aren't how do i reach my cousins and they're my cousins i don't even know how to do that you know but i wish it's something that we can figure out and again i don't have the answers to it but it's just it's the sort of thing that it's it's something that we need to figure out how to make the history that we write not just intelligible but uh you know put that back on the how, how do we mainstream it again how do we um take that you know intellectual bubble false narrative history and demolish that i think that you're talking about something very important i mean we have had these conversations about narrative creation and how you know the stories that we're told as children do have this power over us and then there's some some of us wake up one day and realize you know that's not an accurate story that's the columbus myth or that's a history that is layered and politicized and not a true representation of the things that have actually happened in this nation and it is a difficult thing to unlearn but also something that i think is our responsibility as educators to reckon with and to figure out how we can actually teach and write and reach people in a way that doesn't a alienate them from what they know but like compassionately reach out and reroute you know like kind of right yeah and it's you're not going to solve it in one conversation nope. i think that's like a a big that's that's like too big an ask for for anyone and i used to get so angry with some of my family members and i would be like screaming and yelling at thanksgiving and it would be like a whole mess but but then i realized that I'm not going to get anywhere if I scream and I yell at my uncle and it's what I do instead is he'll say something and I'll just say, why? 
so instead I just say, well, that's interesting. Could you tell me more about it? Um, and sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, but sometimes, sometimes you win and, and then, then that person doesn't shut down and get defensive and because when they shut down, they get defensive. You're, you're not getting anywhere when someone, but I digress. Um, well, it, that's, that's, that's excellent teaching. I mean, I, I think maybe it comes down to the fact that if, if you're an educator in any capacity, museum or college or high school or, uh, whatever, even you have to accept the principle that if you're a teacher, you're teaching somebody, then you have to be able to teach that person and that person has to be able to learn. And, you know, that fundamentally the roadblock to them understanding this isn't them being a bad person, but to them just not understanding it or to them putting too much stock in what these other people on Fox News have to say, right? Like, I, I don't, because if any of you know, my family is, is listening to this, you know, I love you guys. Let's have a conversation about it. You know, it, I think a lot of it is born of disappointment then of disrespect or hate or, you know, not thinking these people are, are, are capable of thinking in a different way or evolving. Because like I said, I've evolved. Uh, I think we're all, hopefully, in this national moment, we're all evolving. That's I hope that's what we're trying to do, you know. And I think most of us, the, the ones who aren't getting, you know, mad money to go on, on Fox News and live all this stuff and write books about it, I think most of us are capable of doing that. So, you know, yeah. if we figure out how to reach these people, then let me know so I can do it. <laughs> and, and even the people who are, you know, who we say like, oh, maybe they're not capable of doing this. It's not they're not capable. They just don't want to because Fox pays too well. So there, there's a real financial incentive for yeah for for people to believe this stuff. And I think understanding that is is a step. But um, you know, moving moving right along. What what kind of things are you like reading and watching or doing doing that aren't scholarly or aren't aren't necessarily related to the work that that you've talked about earlier this evening? Uh, I, I think a couple of your previous guests have mentioned some of the fact that all their current hobbies are kind of gone now because of COVID. Uh, <laughs> yep. I used to love traveling. I used to love going to restaurants. Um, I have a bumper crop of eggplant and figuring out how to dispose of 10 pounds of eggplant has been a journey in and of itself. So um, eggplant freezes really well. That's what I've, I've, I've so yeah, I, half our freezer now is eggplant parm, like cut and breaded in advance. Uh, mm -hmm. So did you press it to get the water out before you, um, before? Uh, you no. So I brined it and then I baked it for about 15 minutes. Uh, I dried it out a little bit. And then I, I dipped it in egg and bread it, and I just froze it like like it is. I, I, there's actually a Twitter thread about this uh, somewhere like on my, my Twitter feed. Devin, like Devin's cow, the the, the Devin, yeah. So he was he had like sort of non secular Well, not a here or there, but I'm really getting into eggplant. And then somebody like actually 15 people then kind of chimed in like, well, I make it like this, and it seems like there's a million different ways to skin an eggplant. So, uh, yeah, anyway. and everyone feels really strongly about their way. That's <laughs> that's a thing that I've learned. So I asked someone, you know, like a few years ago, I was like, oh, do you press the eggplant to, um, you know, before you, uh, you know, like egg it, bread it, fry it? And they're like, no, it ruins it. And I'm like, oh, well, my grandmother told me that if you don't press it, you ruin it. 
So I guess we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> if you could give, you know, like one piece of advice to your younger self, what would you say to yourself? Uh, buy Apple stock. <laughs> That's... I, it, it, I know it's not that profound because uh, I, I kept thinking about this because this, I know you've asked previous guests this and I kept coming back to like, well, if I would have really done anything differently, like my kid wouldn't exist. Yeah. And then I like really started thinking about that, like, whoa, like, that's crazy, right? Like, at what point do you just kind of hit like the lock function on your past life and say, well, can't change anything, you know, because I don't want my kid to not exist. And I thought, like, well, what's something like measurable that I could do that probably wouldn't have made that not happen? I thought, well, I guess buy Apple stock and ignore it. And also don't go to any concerts at Riverport uh, Amphitheater in St. Louis because in 2000, somebody's going to headbutt you while washing right in the middle of your lower oh, back, no. and you're going to have back problems for the rest of your life because of that. So, uh, those two things don't buy Apple stock and don't go to any concerts at Riverport. I like it. I thought a lot about this. <laughs> I can tell you have like a real, you were like, <laughs> you were prepared. So, we're going to end on a higher note than. Uh, <laughs> We're going to end with a headbutt. <laughs> oh, I guess a higher note. Um, what's the thing that you're most proud of that you've done? Well, I, I guess the diplomatic answer would be my child. Uh, the non-diplomatic answer, I think, would be finishing the PhD and finishing my book. Because it took like nine years to write my book. I, I hope it's not bad because then it would have taken me nine years to write a bad book. I, I like that you had to have two answers for that. You're like, well, so this is the one that I'm contractually obligated to give you because I have a child. And then this is the one that I've like blood, sweat and tears into this book. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, my wife did most of the, obviously like most of the work just saving her child. So like, I have to really credit her for that. Um, but I can't also say like, oh, well, not my kid, you know? So <laughs> We've, we've kept it so real tonight. Oh. <laughs> so um, what's on your mind right now? I want people to wear their effing masks so I can get out of the house again. I have a chronic illness. I have ulcerative colitis. I have asthma. You know, probably not the best idea for me to get COVID. And there's other people in far worse shape than I am. And, you know, we just, we want to be able to have our lives again. So please wear a mask. Just wear a mask not that hard wear a mask please i gotta get out of here i know you don't like wearing masks in public but dude i just want to go to a restaurant again okay i just want to get ramen okay that's nice and hot and just get on a plane okay dude just wear your mask so matt we'd like to thank you for chatting with us tonight we've had so much fun and we've really learned so much with you thank you so much for having me on and for your time i really appreciate it so if anyone wants to learn more about your work matt where can they find you online so uh, you can go to my Twitter, which is LuckitDR, or you can go to my website, which is LuckitHistory.com. Thank you again so much for coming on. It has been a blast talking with you and learning about horse theft. I have to say I didn't realize it was as um, as widespread as it was, and I didn't realize that that it was part of this like larger 
I, I don't want to call it like a moral panic because we know what those are, but like this larger, like sort of like capital panic or, or private property panic that, that was, you know, gripping the country at the end of the 19th century in the Gilded Age. So thank you so much. We've got some amazing episodes lined up for you guys over the next few months. We're planning to talk to scholars from all different fields and backgrounds. If you are a scholar beyond the tower with a story to share, please email us at scholarsbeyondthetower at gmail.com or DM us on our social media. We've purposely kept our mission pretty broad because we want to be able to talk about how we engage with our work and with the public inside, outside, and adjacent to the ivory tower. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Tower, on Instagram at Scholars Beyond the Tower, and on Facebook as Scholars Beyond the Tower. You can find me on Twitter at Erin E underscore Becker. You can find me on Twitter at Caroline C. Progro. You can find Scholars Beyond the Tower wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe so we can reach a wider audience. Well, Scholars, until next time, stay connected and stay caffeinated. Thank you.